Welcome to JHE Ministries Bible Study. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries. In our study of the book of James, we are unpacking chapter 2. James has been talking about favoritism and the sin of favoritism. Now, picking up, picking up with that same subject, we're going to start with verse 10. So let's go ahead and get started. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to verse 10. Verse 10 begins, For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now getting into verse 10, the word for indicates that James is going to explain how an act of favoritism makes a person a lawbreaker from verse 9. It is obvious that James has set up a hypothetical case when he speaks of someone who keeps the whole law except for one point. For when we get into chapter 3, James will insist that we all stumble in many ways. However, for the sake of argument, here James imagines a person who stumbles or sins at just one point. James's reasoning is that to break one commandment makes a person guilty of breaking the whole law. Now verse 11 also starts off with the word for showing that James is continuing his explanation. James does so with a simple illustration based on the unity of law. And although God's law has many facets, it is essentially one, being the expression of character and the will of God himself. To violate the law at any one point is not to violate one commandment only, it is to violate the will of God and to contradict the character of God. The same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It is also the same God who gave the royal law of love for one, for one another and love your neighbor. The person who breaks just one of these laws has become a lawbreaker. Although only one commandment is broken, the entire law of God has been disregarded. Now, when viewed like this, an act of favoritism is far from being insignificant. As we get into verses 12 and 13, we're going to conclude with an urgent exhortation and a warning. Exhortation, of course, is encouragement. Now, James would have his readers continue to speak and act in the light of the fact that they are going to be judged. Now, since James is speaking to believers, the judgment to which he refers must be their judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. The standard of judgment will be the law that gives freedom, not the enslaving legalistic system developed by some of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is the royal law of love which the believer is enabled to keep by the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians are no longer under the law, the Ten Commandments, as a rule of life, but are under the law of liberty, 
Jesus, to do what is right. Now, the law of Moses required you to love your neighbor and condemned you when you didn't. Under grace, you are given the power to love your neighbor and are rewarded when you do. You don't do it to be saved, but through the love of Christ who died and rose for you. As we get into verse 13, we need to take a look at the reason for responding to the exhortation of verse 12 is that judgment without mercy will be the lot of the unmerciful. Now, no doubt mercy is singled out because James has the poor man of verse 2 in mind. Instead of the mercy the man needed, he received cruel discrimination, and this was at the hands of professing Christians. If we don't show mercy, we are not walking in fellowship with God and can't expect the consequences of a backslidden condition. The basic principle that was stated in verse 12 was stated by Christ himself in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 33. The recipient of mercy should likewise be merciful. Mercy should be the mark of the regenerated person. If it is present in the believer's life, he or she will have nothing to fear at the judgment. It is in this sense that mercy triumphs over judgment, and the believer will be able to smile triumphantly at the time of judgment. Yes, we all will face this judgment. In the following section, we will begin to see the relation of faith and of action. Now, Paul's doctrine of justification by faith and James's doctrine of justification by works are supplementary. They are not contradictory. Neither was opposing the reaching of the other. Paul and James were devoted friends. They were co-workers. In fact, Paul sought out James's counsel a lot. James fully endorsed Paul's work. And we are told this in the book of Acts when we read chapters 15 and chapter 21. Paul preached faith as the basis of justification before God, but insisted that it must issue in the right kind of life. Faith that saves produces deeds. James was writing to those who had accepted the doctrine of justification by faith, but they were not living right, telling them that such faith was no faith at all. Now again, righteous action is evidence of genuine faith. So getting into the passage at hand, it is divided into three sections. The first one is the proposition, the second one is the argument, and the third is the concluding statement. Here James makes another application of the principle that was set forth in chapter 1 when we read verses 19 through 27, that hearing the word must be accompanied by doing what it says. Now, this letter leaves no place for religion that is mere mental acceptance of the truth. Now, to proceed further, I want to go ahead and start reading, beginning with verse 14. And we're going to be getting into faith without works is dead. 
Verse 14 begins, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So finally here in verse 14, James first states his proposition in two questions, both of which declare that faith not accompanied by good deeds is of no saving value. The two questions set up the, the hypothetical case of a person who claims to have genuine saving faith. The question, can such faith save him, is so structured in the Greek text that it expects a negative answer. This faith, not accompanied by deeds, can't save him, can it? Faith that saves requires faith that proves itself in the deeds it produces. These deeds do not earn merit before God. Rather, genuine faith is associated with regeneration and therefore affects the believer's behavior. Faith that does not issue in regenerate acts is superficial. It is false and fake. Now let's take a look at verses 15 and 16 together. The proposition is now illustrated by a supposed situation that may seem a little strange. It is the case of a fellow believer who is in dire need of clothes and food. Now the statement, uh, the statement depart in peace is a standard Hebrew farewell. In ancient uh, biblical times, many times they would say depart in peace. Now the translation of be warmed and filled or keep warm and well fed may be somewhat misleading in suggesting that the person is already warm and fed, which is not the case. The form of these two verbs either suggests that it is someone else's responsibility to clothe and feed this unfortunate person, or it means get yourself some warm clothes and some food without defining the source. This command is said intentionally. James asks, what good is it? Its seeming concern for the welfare of the poor person is a worthless facade. In verse 17, James states the proposition he intends to demonstrate in the following verses, that faith not accompanied by action is dead. Action is the proper fruit of living faith, because life is dynamic and productive. Faith that lives will surely produce the fruit of good deeds. Therefore, if no deeds are forthcoming, it is proof that the professed faith is dead. Now, James does not deny that it is faith. He simply indicates that it is not the right kind of faith. It is not the living faith, nor can it save. Leading us into verse 18, 
James next proceeds to develop the argument in support of his proposition. James's first point is that deeds are necessary to prove that a person has faith. The problem of identifying the persons referred to by the pronouns you and I is not easily resolved. Perhaps it is best to paragraph the quotation as follows. One person has faith, another has deeds. The statement then becomes an assertion that faith and works are not necessarily related to each other and that it is possible to have either one without the other. To this assertion, James responds with a challenge. Show me your faith without deeds. James implies that faith cannot be demonstrated apart from action. It is an attitude of the inner person, and it can only be seen as it influences the actions of the one who possesses it. Mere profession of faith proves nothing as to its reality. Hence, James declares, I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, in verse 19, we are introduced to the second argument offered in support of the proposition stated in verse 17, which concerns the nature of saving faith. All faithful Jews believe the creed known as the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James commends his Jewish Christian readers for believing that there is one God. This is good. But such acceptance of a creed is not enough to save a person. To prove this point, James declares that even demons believe the Shema. They know that there is but one God, and as a result, they shudder from fear. That the demons are afraid of God is evidence that their belief is a thorough conviction. They believe without a doubt. They know. However, their response is also evidence that their faith is not saving faith. Their belief has not brought them peace with God. Saving faith, then, is not mere intellectual acceptance of a theological proposition. That's a big word by saying just because you believe there's a God does not mean you're saved. It goes much deeper, involving one's whole inner being and expressing itself outwardly in a changed life. Now I want you to think about those thoughts, a little food for thought on James and until next time, we'll pick up with verse 20. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless each and every one of you. And keep living Christian strong.